a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Hey, everybody. Welcome in to another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. My name is Jason Elam, and I am joined by my two excellent co-hosts, and I will let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Lola. I am a bisexual hairstylist from Birmingham, Alabama. I don't really know what else to say about myself. I'm just, I'm just out here trying to live, be alive, and be happy, and be nice to people. And uh, I'm Kyle, just a, another human being trying to be a good human being to other human beings. And I find that the more I purpose that within my day, uh, and the more consciously aware I am of that during the day, the, the better I do it. I do it throughout the day. <laughs> <laughs> so unpack that for us a little bit since you brought it up, Kyle. What does it look like for you on a daily basis to try to be a better human? Well, you know, um, and I don't, I don't want to sound, you know, coming from the, the spiritual, well, not even spiritual, but coming from the church world, you know, there was this great strive to be a perfect Christian, more like Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And so you heard a lot of cliches kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't really authentic. Uh, there was a lot of lip service, a lot of pretentious kind of acting. In the meanwhile, people really treated each other like garbage, especially even, well, even during church. So we'd come to church and get a lot of nasty attitudes and things like that. So now that I'm no longer in that arena, I set myself out to be more authentic. And who I am authentically is a nice person. So just by being me, not with any labels, any titles, any, any pretentious type of, you know, attempts to do anything or be like anyone else. I'm just a nice person. That's just who I am. So just by being me, I can, I can intentionally just be nice to other people. Awesome. You're one of the first people I think of, Kyle, when tragedies happen, because I, I always, you know, Mr. Rogers taught us that when bad things happen to look for the helpers, that there will always be people there helping. One tragedy that's been unfolding in our nation over the last few weeks was the horrible school shooting back at the end of May in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and two teachers lost their lives to a brutal murder uh, at the hands of an AR-15 and a mad gunman. When that happened, I wondered, Kyle, how does somebody like you, Mr. Positivity, how does that hit you? When you hear that those things happen, what goes through your mind? Well, um, it hurts. And I actually felt after that event and maybe at least a couple of weeks after, I just felt an incredible heaviness. I could not get out of my mind what it could have, what it would have, what it could be like to be a parent, to have no thought other than send my child to school and to get a phone call or a message or have, you know, the, the knowledge that me just doing what I'm instinctively known to do as a parent send my child to school, they're not coming home today. And for some reason, I felt that as if I had experienced that. 
And I felt that heaviness for a couple of weeks because I just, I saw these parents and it was, it was just hard. It was just, it's still hard. I mean, just, just that I can't get that, that scenario out of my head because that's all I see mostly. But then at times I, I have compassion on the young man who did what he did because I know this from healing my own trauma over the past year. The things that I was really messing up in in life were largely projections of my own hurt and pain, my own confusion, you know, my own disillusion. And until I was able to address that and understand it, I, you know, I was, I was then able to understand why I behaved the way I behaved. Because I really believe everything has a why. I don't believe anyone's evil. I believe everything has a why. And if we can find the whys of life and why people do things, then we can go to how to heal. Unfortunately, we don't get a chance to get to some of the whys in time and these catastrophic things happen. But I'm hopeful because I'm an optimistic person and I'm hopeful that as humanity continues to, to extend into a better, uh, place in our, in our collective consciousness that a lot of this healing will start to take place as we start to better value mental health and healing and taking care of one another and reaching out for one another and looking out for one another. And I think as that really starts to permeate through humanity, then a lot of the things that, that perhaps cause those traumas will, will also start to come to an end. Lola, how about you? How did it hit you when it happened? For the last thing that Kyle said about about mental health. When I found out what happened, all I could think is, who hurt this 18-year-old boy that made him think that this was a solution or an outlet, an expression? I mean, I, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, not for the entertainment quality, but I'm just constantly in my brain thinking, maybe if... Maybe if we can listen to these stories and learn the psychology behind why people do these horrible things, we can fix it. We can trace it back to something and fix it. But sometimes there's almost nothing to trace it back to. And it just, it's disheartening. And from the things that I've read about this person that um, killed all these people, all these children, it's kind of hard to trace everything back besides just a child that was maybe just bullied. Um, so that's, I mean, I read where he tortured animals too, which is a huge red flag for most, you know, psychopaths and serial killers. Um, it's one of the first things they start doing in early childhood and he displayed signs of it. So it's like, when we see the signs, how do we reverse that damage so that they don't do this type of thing? Um, so I mean, Obviously, it comes down to a lot of the situation uh, kind of inflamed the whole gun control issue, as well as, you know, police being well equipped to deal with this type of situation and honestly just having the balls to go in and deal with it, which obviously, if anyone saw the video, you saw a lot of hesitation happening, whether it was from higher up orders or them just deciding personally to not do anything until like an hour later, I think. I, I'm not sure 
the exact time frame. But with it inflaming all of these things, I feel like we're kind of losing the bigger theme in it, which is, you know, a gun can't kill someone without someone pulling the trigger. And we need to look at that person a lot more as well and just think, what can we do to better our kids so that they don't end up this way, that something in them doesn't break that seems permanent. And I hate to say that because I don't, I don't think you're ever permanently messed up, broken, um, unhealable, unforgivable, but it's just, it's hard to grapple with, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it really is. And you mentioned the video that was released this week showing the officers waiting. It was about an hour in the hallways of the classroom. In the video, you can actually hear the gunshots going off while they stand in the hallway. Oh, and I got to say it, uh, there's even one scene where two of the police officers are fist bumping each other as if they're about to, you know, go in and take the scene. So that stuff is infuriating. And it is so easy for me to see a video like that and make those cops, you know, the bad guys. And, you know, I want to scapegoat the deaths of those children onto the cops who I think should have rushed in there quicker. But I know myself, I probably wouldn't have been in a hurry to run in front of a gunman either. Uh, obviously, if, if kids were in the way, I would hope that I would go put myself between them and a gun. But Kyle, am I scapegoating the cops to blame them? Am I, I mean, what is the, I hate to even put it this way, but how, are, how, do, how should good human beings respond to a tragedy like this, Kyle? I've thought about this a lot and not to play hero ball, as, as they say in sports, but I really think that, that I would have done something if I were there as a cop. <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, I, I just would have done something. I, I don't. I don't think I could have stood there, whether under orders or not. You know, job be damned. Who cares? There, there's there's people potentially dying here, so I would have done something. But you know, I I know there's a lot of anger, and rightfully so. And there's a lot of pain, more rightfully so. And we 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 most certainly want someone to punish. You know, when when Aubrey. I uh, forget his last name. Aubrey, um, the, the young man that got shot by the three men while he was out jogging a couple of years ago, when he got shot, I was, of course, sickened by that event. But I, I was, I had compassion on the shooters. For whatever deluded reason they did it, I just thought for a moment there that they're probably going to spend the rest of their lives in jail. And nobody was created to spend their life in jail. And although I wanted justice and I wanted them to be punished for what they did, sometimes, you know, I, I still feel like I want to have compassion on the perpetrator too. And should I? And I think I should because it's still a human being. And somewhere along their journey, something got really distorted. And, you know, perhaps that responsibility falls back on us as a society, as, as a group, as one, to really be our brother's keeper. Um, I was bullied as a kid, heavily. And I remember one time I, I was so angry at this one perpetrator. I, I, I couldn't take it no more. I, I, this is it, it you know, and, and we're going to deal with this today. And I lived right across the street from the school. And I ran across the street, got a knife, and I was running back across the street to deal with this little 
kid, you know, I was, I was maybe in fifth grade. He was probably in fifth grade, but I, I just, I didn't know what else to do. I, dude was doing me dirty every day. <laughs> what was he doing? <laughs> he was just doing me dirty. Just, you know, that's, that's some more slang talk for him. He was just mistreating me really bad, okay. you know, <laughs> slinging me, you know, having his way with me. He was really doing me dirty. And I, I, you know, I, 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 my father would always say, if you can't beat them, pick up something and, and hit them with it or go get something. And, you know, so that's the only thing I can think of. And although I was a very rational person, even as a kid, for the most part, but I just hit my breaking point. And I remember I ran to the house, grabbed this knife, because that's the only thing I can think of. I'm running back across the street to the school. My neighbor, who was also my age, she was on her porch balcony. She, she was watching this whole thing. She saw me running back across the street with the knife and yelled, Kyle, Kyle, no, no. And through all that chaos, I heard her voice. Through my chaos, through my, I was crying, I was mad, I was enraged, and I heard her calling my name. And to this day, whenever we talk, we always talk on our birthdays, I always thank her for saving my life. Because I have no idea what would have happened had I made it back to that playground with that knife. This dude was doing me dirty every day. He probably would have taken it and stabbed me. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, or I would have stabbed him and ended up in juvenile, and who knows where my life would have ended up at that point. So, you know, I, I said all that to say, maybe we, as a whole, bear responsibility in some way. Because had she not taken the responsibility to call my name, she could have just played it out, let it, let it, you know, just let's see what happens here. So, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to absolve the the perpetrators of responsibility, but just on a higher level, perhaps maybe as we continue to progress, as we continue to grow in love and unity and and really the oneness that I believe we all are, maybe we were we were advancing to a place where these kind of things won't happen because we really will be our brother's keepers. A thing that's important for me that, that comes to mind every time something like this happens. And I do, I, I point a finger at that shooter and I think, Oh my goodness, you're a monster. But then there's this scene from my favorite TV show that replays in my head. I, I'm a big fan of a show called The West Wing. Uh, it was on in the nineties and early two thousands, political drama, President Bartlett and all this. There's this show, there's this episode where there's been a pipe bombing in a university and a bunch of people are dead. And he stands in front of a, uh, I don't know, it's a union of teachers or something. He's supposed to be making a speech before the bomb went off and all that. But then all this has happened. He doesn't know what to say in the fallout. And he just gets up there and off the cuff says, they weren't born wanting to do this. Mm, say that louder. Yes. They weren't born wanting to do this. Yeah. And that, that just sticks with me. And every time I see one of these tragedies and you see a shooter go into another school, you know he was not born wanting to do that. And so how can we as the human family... As you just said, Kyle, how can we take responsibility? How can we say, you know, not one more kid in my neighborhood is going to grow up to be that. Now, he was killed in that classroom after he had killed those 19 children and two teachers. And so he doesn't get the chance to evolve past that in life. Now, I'm certainly hopeful in an afterlife where all the wounds get healed. I feel like it's on us to say, 
as much as it's up to me, I'm not going to look the other way when, Lola, we see that teenager torturing animals. When we see the red flags, I'm not going to just look the other way. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I think it's probably uh, easier said than done, right? takes more availability for mental health services for children and parents, Absolutely. like new parents especially, people that are not fully equipped yet to deal with right. teenagers and kids. And, and you mentioned the gun control debate. I mean, you know, we've, we've heard for decades that the only remedy for a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, there were about 20 good guys with guns standing out in the hallway. Yeah, a lot of good that did. That's what I was thinking. They all came in there like fucking strapped. And it's like, you just stood there and you got Germex and you fist bumped. Like, what am I supposed to do with this information? There are children. Right. It's it's infuriating. Um, But the answer is bigger. It's bigger than politics. Yeah. It's bigger than policy. And I think some policies do need to change. If more guns makes us safer, then the United States should be the safest place in the world, but we're one of the most dangerous. Yeah. So more guns is not the answer. That's so sad. We've, we've got to find a way to heal hearts. And yeah. religion isn't doing it, as we all three well know. Yeah. Religion isn't doing it. Anyway, um, we'll continue to talk about this subject as it develops in the weeks ahead. But moving now to a much brighter topic, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for Auntie Lola's Bible Stories. What the fuck? Okay, so today's Bible story is David and Goliath. David is one of nine brothers. He's the youngest. His older brothers were serving in the Israeli army when he was about probably around 14, 15. And uh, one day his dad was like, hey, take your brother's food. Go go find them wherever they're practicing, fighting, whatever, uh, and take them some food. So he went there and uh, he gave his brothers everything. And he took a look around and he saw some Philistines that were kind of being boastful, kind of like fuck around and find out at the rest of the Israeli army. And so David is like, you know, this cocky little kid, it seems. And he was like, well, you know, this is the Israeli army and we're, we're God's people. God's going to be with us. So I want to take on that big guy over there. That's, that's talking shit pretty much. So um, he went to the king and he was like, hey, can I go fight this dude? And he was like, fuck no, David, you're so tiny. Don't do that. But eventually he was like, all right, whatever. Uh, so David went and got his weapon of choice. Uh, out of all the things that he could pick, he picked the uh, slinger, slingshot, which is just small rock that's super rounded and smoothed. Um, and it goes in a little pouch. You swing it all around and it goes at a very high velocity rate into your opponent's body face. Apparently David hit him square in the forehead. So we have to talk about this though. A slingshot is extremely, it takes a lot of training in order to hit a target that squarely in the forehead and knock them out. So you have to know that because his brothers were already in the army, David was probably up to be in the army. You couldn't enlist until you were 20 back in the day. So 
you know, he's probably still training though, picking up tips from his brothers. So Goliath almost didn't stand a chance. I don't think that God was a proponent of violence for this story. I don't think God was with David at all. Pretty much Goliath um, suffered from, I think you pronounce it acromegaly, which is gigantism. So he was a very big dude. He was 6'9", they believe. And he was super stocky. He was in the infantry, just covered in armor. He had no chance. He had double vision, most likely, like Andre the Giant had. Lots of lots of different disorders. He did not stand a chance against David. So happy David and Goliath. And then he cut off the dude's head. Uh, David cut off Goliath's head and then paroled it around town. I just <laughs> go God, I guess. <laughs> There you go. All right. So once again, we hear these Bible stories and, you know, the veggie tale is a lot happier story. Um, you, you don't see the giant disabled man. Uh, you don't see the, so, the stone sink into his forehead, him fall over dead. And then the beheading at the hands of the shepherd boy who'd been practicing apparently on bears and lions, according to the story. Just a quick poll. Who here believes this actually happened? I don't believe that it happened the way that it's told. Yeah, me either. I think it's a lot of folklore. This sounds like the kind of myth that rises up in the wake of a political campaign, right? I mean, we know <laughs> yes. from the biblical account anyway that David was a king of Israel, thought of as the greatest king of Israel. And the old saying was, you know, Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And so you know that the lore was strong with this one. Yeah. And they're telling those stories over, you know, now centuries. And uh, I'm sure some things have gotten added along the way. But it was definitely, the, the story was told from the perspective of the God of Israel saved us from these, from these giants that were looking to squash us and were capable of destroying us. But our God was with us as a sign of the blessing of God. God was stacking bodies back in yeah. the day. He was stacking them, for sure. Let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> So, Kyle, do you think any differently now about that story than you did when you first heard it? Yeah, I do. And there's a there's a huge issue I have with the God of the Old Testament, particularly. As Lola said, that God loves to stack bodies. You know, they were outside of that story, there there are all these other genocidal acts. So let's know based on the story that these Philistines were the arch enemies of Israel, the hated arch enemies. So Clearly, God was on Israel's side and not on the Philistine side. And clearly, God is okay with Israel triumphing and the Philistines not triumphing. The problem with that, if we go along that basic storyline as is told on every church corner, every church on every corner in America, maybe even in the world, depending on how they tell the story. But if we go based upon that, that storyline, that God is with these group and against that group, then isn't that really troubling considering that this God is supposed to be the God of the whole world and all of people? Isn't that, you know, isn't that, doesn't it get troubling when you're, when you're not thinking about it? No, like, absolutely. Like, do the souls of the giants not matter? Exactly. Suddenly? Exactly. Do, do the Philistines not matter? Do the Amalites not matter? And all the other ites? Do, do none of these other people matter? 
None of these other people were not loved and highly favored and, and, and part of this whole thing. So, you know, you get these stories and because we become so fixated on Israel and they being the chosen and they being the victors and they being God's, the ones God's with, you tend to look on these other people as if they're nothing. And this is the huge problem with especially Christian nationalism and and, and when this whole thing gets this way, an American, uh, you know, superiority and this whole thing, God's chosen. Whenever that mindset gets in people, you tend to take on this idea that you are the ones and it's your responsibility to either root out what you deem to be evil because you think you're backed by this God who says that's evil. And that's a classic example of that story. You know, why couldn't the Philistines brag if they wanted to brag? What, you know, what business is it any of God, of a God, you know? So, you know, the story just, you know, kind of indicates that God was really upset that they were mocking God. And so, you know, David gets upset because he feels God is upset. And whenever you get people that feel like they need to do something because God is upset, you're going to have some trouble on your hands. And it's not going to be pretty for the other people. Mm-hmm. God is a full-ass being. He doesn't need people to step up on his behalf, their behalf, her behalf. I don't know what to call God anymore. Well, these, these kind of stories don't help that narrative much. No, but everybody <laughs> loves a good underdog. Like yeah, everybody yeah. loves that. Yeah. The, the good versus evil. It's in every story that we hear. Like C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. talked about that all the time. And I think that we actually have a darker motive. I don't, I don't think it's just the whole, we like the David versus Goliath, the underdog story. I think we like stories that make us feel important, right? Right. Because yeah. very young, while I was a really young kid in the Nazarene church, I was told that America is the new Israel. Mm. And so our enemies are God's enemies. And what do we do when we're sending off our young men and women to die in war? We pray for God's blessing and we ask God to give our snipers uh, good vision and fast trigger fingers and all these horrible things that if Jesus himself were standing in the front of your church, you would never ask him for. (laughs) But we be, we want to believe that God is on our side. And so we latch onto these stories because yeah. we think, I could be like David. And there's some giants in my life that need to fall. And so if I just believe enough, and if I try to be a man after God's own heart, the way the Bible says David was, then maybe the giants will fall in my life too. But the Sunday school story, the flannel graph story, the Auntie Lola's Bible story doesn't include the story about David raping Bathsheba. No, 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 no. Doesn't talk about all the people he killed, including her husband. No, no, no. Doesn't talk about the fact that the man was a player. Yep. Concubines, multiple wives. Yep. The the guy was so frisky that when he was near death, to find out if he was still alive or not, oh, they yeah. put a young virgin in the bed with him to see if he could be aroused. Yep. I mean, the my God. are strong with this one. That, that could Ooh. have been a whole Auntie Lola's Bible story by itself. That's true. Just that last part of David's life. Yes. This guy is not a hero. 
but Sunday school told me he was. Yep. And so that leads us to our main topic of this episode. Vacation Bible school, church camp, <laughs> Sunday school. We are teaching these stories to children and making them think that these folks, I mean, we call them, right? The heroes of the faith. Yeah. You should want to be like David when you grow up, little Johnny. Does church harm, traumatize our children? Lola, we're going to start with you because uh, as someone who I think was probably traumatized by the church in her own childhood, I'd love to hear your perspective. I think a lot of really bad things come from it. I think children inherit a lot of bad theology from church. I mean, church camp and VBS, it can be fun. It has fun aspects that kids like, but it's also, it's like selling popcorn. Like you can get it out to a wide audience and they'll just keep eating it if um, they're watching something else. Like if you distract them enough, they'll keep, they'll keep consuming what you give them. So, and kids are so impressionable as we know. So, I mean, even teenagers, super impressionable. That's how I became a horrible patriot and like gunslinging Jesus girl back in the day. So, I mean, first of all, it gives kids an understanding of scripture that is very one dimensional and has a bunch of different biases around it. So there's not a lot of room for, I mean, obviously kids ask questions, but there's not a lot of room for their own opinion on what's happening. There's not a lot of room for their voice. Kids don't really have a voice to mind. I mean, in my church circles, you're kind of just fed all this information and then you're handed problems that you don't have the responsibility to do anything with. You're not equipped to deal with it. And mentally, it can be very heavy on a child to be given ideas like eternal conscious torment and the crucifixion like watching Passion of the Christ when you're 10 years old, that is not, don't do that. <laughs> or, or, or 30, yeah. Oh, or 30. I mean, yeah. any of it, really. I hate gore to begin with. There's plenty of that. But it's, I mean, it's an easy way for them to recruit. They, they can take, they can make little soldiers. They can evangelize children. You just deliver children into the, the bloody hands of ministry essentially. When you start putting them in VBS and church camp, you can go into it with like really good intentions, obviously. And parents, I don't believe that they're meaning to put them, like put their kids in a compromising situation. But things like this are easy to sell to parents too. I feel like parents are victims. You know, think about a mom that is a a full-time stay-at-home mom. She's got three kids. It's a lot. And mm-hmm. then suddenly summer camp comes up. It's affordable. It's, um, they're, they're gone for a week or two and it's a God thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's a double whammy for her. Right. You know, she can go get all of her stuff done and the kids are taken care of and they're going to learn about God. That sounds like a great thing, but really sure. it's just taking advantage of that person, that parent that's just worn out and needs a break. Well, and let's think about it this way, right? Because a lot of churches, I know a lot of pastors, and they've got really good intentions, 
with VBS. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had some fun with Vacation Bible School at the last church that I served. I mean, y'all, we were stringing up donuts from the, from the <laughs> ceiling and you had to try to bite the glazed donut off. I mean, I'm all for the donut. Y'all can look at me and tell I am with it. I'm here for the donut con- eating contest. I'm all for that. And, and, and I love the community aspect of church and VBS. I love, um, you know, giving money to missions to help poor people around the world that they do at VBS or at kids camp, things of that nature. I love helping that single mom. I love feeding those kids three meals a day at kids camp. Love all of that. But where is it leading them to? Is the question now, Kyle? I know um, you had told me a couple of weeks ago that you actually had good experiences right at church camp. Yeah, at the church camp. I, well, I was a teenager by that point, so you know, uh, and I was already pretty much steeped in what I believed. But uh, you know, I think there's a there's a handful of very deadly scriptures. I have I have an opinion about the Bible that probably most people don't share, but I most certainly think that there's a handful of very deadly toxic, misleading scriptures. One of those is train up a child in the way of the Lord and when he's older, he will not depart. Well, that verse has been used and continues to be used to give parents what they believe is the green light to bring their children to church. But in the context of that verse, Solomon was actually talking about money. Money matters. And it probably didn't even say, you know, in the way of the Lord. But it probably was added on much later. But he was most definitely talking about money. Now, I just did a TikTok video on this as I was spontaneously thinking about it because that's how most of my stuff comes out, just by spontaneously thinking about it. And it started from a question. Why don't we let children vote? Why not? Well, most people would probably say because they're not mentally there yet. They don't have enough capacity to make such an informed decision about something so important. They can't assimilate the information coming from the candidates enough. If children had a chance to vote, they'd probably be looking for the Mickey Mouse or the, you know, the Bugs Bunny, you know, candidate or, you know, where's Santa Claus here, (laughs) you know, because they, they don't have yet the ability to be able to make an informed decision about something so important because the information is probably too much for their small minds to handle at the ages that we're talking about. Well, is religion any different? Is it any different? Isn't this major information? Isn't this doesn't this have major implications on life and what happens after you make this decision? So why are we letting children have any type of religious activities whatsoever? Why? Oh, I know. It makes the parents feel better. Oh, little Johnny got saved last week. Oh, praise God. Oh, little Sarah gave her life to the Lord. And the parents feel good. And in some ways, maybe it makes the parent feel safe because you know you got to protect this child from this devil in this hell. So I know there's those elements in there. And I get that part because to, to like my mom, who felt like she needed to protect us from the devil and protect us from hell, in her mind, she was doing what she thought was best for us. But what she didn't understand was the unintended consequences that came from that, which was my indoctrination, which was my delusion that would come out of that uh, indoctrination, which would lead to years of trauma. 
She didn't under, she didn't know, she didn't have any idea that that would happen, but it did. And guess what? It didn't just happen to me. It happens to everybody, whether you recognize it or not. Everyone who sits in church for any period of time develops some type of religious trauma because it's based on fear. It's based on control. It's based on manipulation. And I understand people have good intentions and they think they're doing good. But when you think you're doing good by elements of inducing fear into the equation, you've, you've done wrong. You've gone wrong right then and there. No matter how good you think you're doing, as soon as you introduce fear, you're going astray. But I don't think this is understood and I don't think it's recognized. And then when children get older and they decide to, they, they decide, you know what? Now that I have ability to understand reason and logic and I can put in critical thinking now, this doesn't really make any sense. But what does that child do? Can that child just pick up their bags and say, I'm out of here? They can, but under what pressure will they face if they tried that? And then we start this whole other cycle of now you feel stuck. You don't let mama down. You don't let daddy down. You don't want to, you, you, you don't want to let the youth group down. And there's all these other pressures that come along with it. So I don't think children should be involved in any religious activities whatsoever. I think they should be able to be children. I think they should grow and mature. And if they come to a point in their later life when they have gained information, let them make their own decision whether or not they want to have any religious affiliation or not. Or guess what? Maybe they've gained enough information where they say, you know what? That religion sounds cuckoo. I'm going to try that one. But that's not often the way it works. But I think it should work that way. And it should be that way. And that's how I'm going to raise my children. They're going to have no religious influence from me whatsoever. None. They're not going to be allowed to have any. And maybe that's extreme. But maybe that's me trying to protect them from what happened to me. But I'm willing to do that because I think no religious affiliation is better than trying to heal from the trauma that comes from religious affiliation. And that's my personal view. I am afraid for my kids to ever tell me they want to go to church. I'm afraid for that. <laughs> oh, and let me let me say this as well, because I don't, I don't want any parents that's hear, hearing this feel like I'm condemning you for bringing your children to church. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, you know, from my experience, what it did to me and what I've seen it done, what I've seen happen to so many other children. And I think if we don't let our children vote, if we can use that same mentality, if we don't let our children vote, then why are we letting them make religious decisions? Because isn't that an important one too? Valid. I remember going to, uh, at the Nazarene church, we called it a kid's crusade. And uh, the, this children's revival, these puppeteers were presenting the gospel message, you know, and it, they had great intentions. Sweet old couple. But that night I heard that I was a dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinner. That was the night? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And that I was headed for hell. And that I needed to pray a prayer and ask for God's forgiveness because it didn't even matter if I had broken the rules myself, I inherited sin. And that God could not look upon me without wanting to destroy me. And so that I needed to come and pray and ask Jesus to apply his blood all over me so that when God looked at me, he saw Jesus and would let me into his family, let me into his heaven. Because if I didn't do that, I was going to be dragged to hell at the end of this life to burn for all eternity. And do you know, I, 
Of course, I prayed the prayer. I would have done anything they wanted me to do. I got baptized in the church. I didn't just get baptized once. I want to make sure it's stuck. I got baptized three times over the course of my life. And I just want to make sure that it was for real, you know? None of them in the Church of Christ, though, Lola, so none of them would have counted. But anyway, (laughs) um, I got baptized three times. And... But do you know what also started? Not just my walk with Jesus started during that children's revival, but I started having these nightmares. Mm. And every night, a hand would come up from under my bed and pull me down. Stop. Like going to be pulling me into hell. I had the same one. Similar, very similar. Really? Very similar. And the only thing that kept that from happening was my dad would come in and pray for me before I'd go to sleep. And then I wouldn't have the bad dreams. Mm. But that's what we were talking about the last episode, where religion gives you a disease and then sells you the cure. Yeah, yeah. Because the disease is fear. That's it. But I grew up thinking I was broken. I was flawed. I was dirty. I was unacceptable. And that so traumatized me. I've spent the rest of my life trying to prove my own acceptability to everyone around me. So I have friends, again, who are pastors and pastor's wives and uh, faithful members of churches. And every time I say something like this, I will get somebody on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere who says, well, our church is nothing like that. And we've never had an experience like that at our church. Let me ask you a question. Does your church preach that hell exists? And that that's where non-Christians go. Because 95% of the churches in America preach that. And if yours is not one of them, then great, wonderful, more power to you. But the minute you introduce a child to the threat of eternal conscious torment, you have traumatized the child. Even at age 24, that traumatizes me to think about any decision that I make before my frontal lobe is fully developed could determine my fate after death. I mean, death is already scary for us to come to grips with. And then you add hell as a factor on top of that. It just, if it's fear-based, it's it's just not effective long-term in my eyes. Yeah. You know, I, I got a double whammy of trauma. One from the fear. Something very similar to what Jason was talking about. My grandmother used to say, if we were, you know, misbehaving or bad that day, she'd say, the devil's going to get you tonight. Mm. And I would literally have this dream of the, my bedroom floor opening up, opening up, the devil rising up from it and grabbing me. And I'm yelling and screaming and the devil's laughing its head off saying, yell all you want. No one can hear you. You're mine. And mm. I, I can remember that dream and I, I can still feel the terror of it. And I would have that simply because my grandmother used to say the devil's going to get you tonight. So again, so I had this fear element that, you know, hit me very early on. I've also had a faith element that hit me very early on. I never forget I was in church and I heard this song, give it all, give it all to Jesus, shattered dreams, wounded hearts and broken toys. I had a Tonka truck at home with a broken right wheel. And I remember hearing that song. I perked up. I was maybe like six or seven years old in church. I perked up and said, broken toys? Broken toys? And I couldn't wait to go home to say and to give this truck to Jesus so he can fix my wheel. 
Well, you know, the will never got fixed, but what it did was it, 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 it again, it instilled in me an unreasonable reliance on faith. So I was either operating out of a tremendous fear or unreasonable faith most of my Christian journey all because of what was instilled in me as children, as a child. Get that as a tattoo. Oof. How long did it take the two of you, maybe it's still in process, how long did it take you to de-traumatize from your early church experiences? My journey started in 2009. And maybe two years ago, I really felt like I was totally free from it. Whereas I have no desire for it to be part of it to want it and and then maybe I'm on the extreme and now where I find no value in it at all and maybe you know and I, I tried when I say that I try to examine the statement before it leaves my mouth is it coming from a place of anger resentment bitterness or anything like that and I really don't think it is I just don't see any use for it and, and I'm not talking about the people but the institution itself of religion. I, I find no value in it. We can do good things without religion. We can still feed the hungry, love on people, take care of the elderly. We can still do those things without a religious connotation. We should be doing those things as human beings. We don't need a religious connotation over it to be able to do those things. So, you know, I know because sometimes when I say that, you know, I, I may post a video on TikTok to say religion is totally useless and people will come back and say, well, what about this? And churches do this and they do this, that. You don't need to be in a church to do that. You understand that, right? So, you know, this is not exclusive to church. This is not exclusive to religion. Not only, religions are not the only people that help people and feed the hungry. You know, they do it probably to make themselves feel better because they're probably, you know, really ugly people when they treat other people a lot of different other ways. And they do this to make themselves feel better. So, you know, that's my personal view. And it, it took me, it took me a, a long time since 2009 up until about two years ago. I started questioning and and really burning down everything in my mind in 2019. I'm still in trauma therapy, if that tells you anything. I'll say I'm not healed from that trauma. I'm a lot better at bandaging the wounds, but I'm not healed. I still get butt hurt about the church and the things that they might say about me, seeing my like where I'm walking now. I still get angry when I shouldn't or the the function of anger doesn't serve me when it comes to religion and seeing um, it being a force in politics and a, people's moral agenda and everything, school, etc. So um, because of all those things and how they still kind of get under my skin and affect me, affect me in a negative light, I think I'm not fully healed, which is, I feel very vulnerable saying that. It's embarrassing, but it's okay though. It's okay that I'm not healed yet because I'll, maybe I'll get there one day, but like the journey there is good with me. I'm, I'm learning a lot. I'm having a good time along the way. So I'm feeling better. Are you better off than you were a couple of years ago? Oh, fuck Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm I'm so free. Like I'm so free. I've never one day it actually it's like I physically felt something just 
let go of me like in 2020 and it was raining outside and I ran outside and I just started like screaming and laughing and I looked stupid to all my neighbors, but like it was just some sort of cathartic release. And it was like, I'm actually free of all the things that I thought God was and what I thought I was supposed to be. I'm free of that. I can be literally whatever I want to be now and who I need to be to level up and everything. So I'm so fucking free. I'm so happy. Awesome. Friends listening, we want to hear from you on the Messy Conversations Facebook group, on the MessySpirituality.org blog, or on Patreon, or on a comment uh, when you found this link to this episode. We would love to hear from you. What are the most harmful doctrines you were traumatized by? growing up in the church. And if that wasn't your experience, I'd love to hear that as well. I'd love to hear about some positive experiences. Uh, we want to provide a forum for you to join the conversation. So please do so. Messy Conversations on Facebook, MessySpirituality.org is the blog. Eventually, we're going to put up these videos on YouTube. So if you're watching it there, uh, you can leave a comment. Um, check us out on Patreon. Uh, slash Messy Spirituality Media. We'll upload some videos and some special content there and you can be a producer of the show. Kyle and Lola, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. We're going to do it again two weeks from now. Uh, another Auntie Lola's Bible story and another fun conversation. So um, be well, be yourself, and be free. Be free.